You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Uh, Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Again, the reading is Acts 20, verses 7 through 38. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. Then they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Azus, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Azus, we took him on board and met at my Mitlini. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched Samos, and the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentant Repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. 
And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. This is the word of God for the people of God. So we are continuing our sermon series in the book of Acts, and I said before that we should not call this book the Acts of the Apostles. It should be called the Acts of the Ascended Lord Jesus um, it's part two of the life of Jesus. Part one is the book of Luke. The same writer wrote Acts. So it's really just one document, Luke Acts. And it's the continuing life of that same person. But now he has ascended. So at the, the end of the book of Luke, he, uh, he is crucified and he rises. And that life that, that comes, uh, that is so powerful, that new life that comes from that event where uh, death is destroyed. Even crucifixion is overcome by this resurrection life. That resurrection life is now spread throughout the whole world because he has ascended. People know about his death and resurrection. They don't often think about the ascension of Christ. That now, in Acts chapter 1, he leaves the planet, so to speak. It says he goes up. But really what it means is he goes into a different realm. And I've compared it before to the upside-down realm in the the Stranger Things uh, series. But he enters into a parallel dimension um, so he's not like up there on another planet. Uh, he is right behind my hand, you know, in a different dimension where you can't see it. It's like a, a fourth, fifth, sixth dimension. And uh, he is right now ruling the world from there with all of that life, that energy, uh, this new creation life. And he's creating new people, a new humanity with that life. And the whole book of Acts is the way that that life is spread from Jerusalem. And then it goes out to all of Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And we are looking now at a part where um, Paul has gone around. Paul has taken that life uh, from little tiny Jerusalem to massive Antioch. And then he spreads it out into Asia. He goes to uh, Corinth and Athens. Uh, He goes to mighty Ephesus. And now he's returning to Jerusalem to end this course. And he knows when he goes to Jerusalem that he will be uh, afflictions await him. Imprisonment awaits him. But he's going back there because he knows that's where it's got to end. 
And so this is coming to the end of his journeys. And uh, this is a time where uh, we're given these two snapshots of what the life uh, of the church looked like. The thing that he's been spreading around the empire, um, this empire killing force of the new creation that will one day actually so undermine the Roman Empire that Rome will fall uh, because of the power of Christianity. Um, We see these two snapshots at the very end of Paul's journey, and they're both on these seacoast towns of Turkey. Um, And one is a worship service in this little town of Troas. It's the only depiction of worship uh, that we have in the book of Acts. So it's a a, a full description of a worship service. I want to look at that briefly. That's pretty short. But then more at length, I want to look at the uh, address to the Ephesian elders. Because after he goes uh, from Troas, he goes down to Miletus, and he calls all of the elders of the church of Ephesus, which is probably his largest church. He spent three years there. And he calls them, and he wants to address them. He wants to tell them certain things. I want to look at what he tells them. So uh, those are the two things. First, the worship service, and then the uh, conversation he has with the elders um, of the church of Ephesus in Miletus. So um, only a worship service in Acts, and guess what? It's in the evening. So that's why we have worship in the evening. Um, we know it's in the evening because uh, this guy falls asleep because he's so tired. because He's gotten off work. It's Sunday evening. And the two elements of the worship service that are, are like for sure, there's probably a lot more. There's probably singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We know that from other places. But we know for sure there's a sermon. It's a long sermon. And then there's communion. That's the other thing that's very clear about this word. So... If, as long as you're worshiping on a Sunday in the evening, there's a, a sermon and communion, you're good. And we got all those elements here. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting setting. It's a third-story room. I don't know where, you know, in Miletus they had rented some home. But if you remember, this is now, this is the Roman Empire, so they don't get Sunday off. They've all gone to work. So you have these flickering lamps. It says these smoky lamps. Um, third-story room crammed with people, just stuffed in there. Probably a lot of servants and slaves getting off work because that's a lot of the people that the early Christians reached because they told them you're equal to your masters. You're, you're all the same. And women, too. Women and slaves are the majority of the, of the early church. So you have these, these people, exhausted people have gotten off work. They're up there. Um, there's this slave boy whose name is Lucky. Um, that's what Eutychus means. And so there's this guy named Lucky and he's sitting in a window and it says that Paul is doing a lot of talking. Uh, it says in verse 7 that he prolonged his speech till midnight. I try to stay around 25 minutes, so we're not going to be here till midnight. But it says, um, I think Luke is actually like poking fun at his good friend Paul. Because it says in verse 9, Paul spoke so long that Eutychus became drowsy. And by the way, I can tell when you get drowsy. So just so you know, I can see that um, when some of you are getting drowsy. But uh, this guy gets so drowsy that he falls asleep in verse 9. He fell down from the third story and was taken up as dead. In other words, he died. He fell three stories out of the window and he died. And it's very odd that the only worship service in the book of Acts that is recorded includes somebody who dies because the sermon went so long. And Paul sprints down the stairs and he, uh, he rushes to the side of this, this kid who's maybe like 12, something like that. Um, based on the word for boy, uh, he bends over Lucky. Uh, he takes him up in his arms. And for whatever reason, he knows that God is telling him, I'm going to bring him back to life. And so he says this prayer. 
And then in verse 10, it says he's alive. This is another translation, but it says he's alive. God has heard me. Have no fear. And it's that same life of Christ, you know, that conquers death. The same life of Christ um, is this. This is one of the signs and wonders of the kingdom that we have this uh, death conquering life appearing in Miletus, in the life of Lucky, this kid. And it says that uh, after he has been raised, um, they run back up the stairs. I can imagine them, you know, like like a skipping up the stairs like kids because they're so excited about they actually see the presence of the resurrection right before their eyes. And they go up the stairs, and what do they do when they get up there? Um, it says in verse 11, they, they took the Lord's Supper, and they celebrated till the sun came up. So that's the, uh, the celebration that occurs after this uh, resuscitation and the experience of the Lord's Supper. And it's interesting, this whole thing, if you think about the shape of this whole thing, you've got the third story window, the guy falls, you've got the fall, he dies, and then he, he, he rises from the dead and he ascends. So I keep saying this, but it's that, it's that shape of the you. And uh, I, I love the word you catastrophe. You know, it's the word that J.R. Tolkien invented based on his Lord of the Rings trilogy. And it means a euphoric catastrophe, a catastrophe that ends with euphoria. It's the shape of that you. And basically, it's like a hopeless night that breaks into this beautiful dawn. And that's really at the heart of what Christianity is. Uh, it says in verse 12, they were not a little comforted. Some people say that our, our worship here, um, I've heard people say it's, it's too dark, you know, too somber. And uh, I've heard others say it's too cheery, too happy. And um, I would say it's not supposed to be like 50-50, a little bit of uh, tragedy, and a little bit of comedy. It's like a tragic comedy, full, full scale, like... King Lear and then all's well that ends well together or Breaking Bad embedded in the Princess Bride, you know, a great comedy. But at the heart of it, you have this this horrible tragedy. So it's very dark. Our worship should be very dark at times. And then all of a sudden have these bursts of joy because that's what the gospel is like. That's what this worship service is like. I think that's what the passage is telling us, that the Lord's Supper perfectly depicts uh, this catastrophe, this man who has died uh, is being uh, raised, defeating death. Uh, the very worst thing that ever happened becomes the greatest uh, event ever. Um, a lot of y'all know that my dad died um, last Saturday, and, uh, and I saw the horror of death. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's not something you want to look at. It's, um, it's, it's, really, it's, it's clearly an enemy. It's not natural. You know, the, the day, day or two before he was talking to us, and then all of a sudden, like, his breathing drops to, like, once every 30 seconds. And he's just laboring to catch his breath. And then the next thing I know, like, his body is basically rigid. Like, it's clearly not him anymore. Like, one second he's there, and then he's gone. And I just thought about, it was just an awful thing to watch my dad, like, have that happen, just be overcome by death. But, and that is the ultimate tragedy. The Bible says that's the last enemy, death. But, at the same time, like, we're... God has brought his whole family there. You know, just kind of almost miraculous. He got us all there. All of us were there. And our hands are laid on him. And uh, we're telling him we love him. And it's okay. We, we release you. It's okay. You know, go be with God. And we are, we sang, um, do Lord, oh do Lord, oh do remember me. Then we sang, um, 
Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. And then we sang, we, we sang Amazing Grace while he died, while we saw the last pulse. He, he stopped breathing, and there was a little while where was, the pulse was still there. And then as we were singing that song, he, it was gone. And we thanked God and praised God. In fact, my brothers and atheists said, why don't, why don't, we, why don't we pray right now? And uh, we prayed. And all of this, this joy is there. Uh, the celebration, it would not be there without the resurrection. Without the resurrection, that would be a nightmare. But with the resurrection, that becomes glorious. And that's what um, Tim Keller said, who also died the same week as my dad. And, and Austin texted me, I love thinking about your dad and Tim Keller talking. Um, but Tim Keller said that in his battle with cancer at the end, he really leaned on this line from Lord of the Rings. Where it says, in the deepest darkness, the thought pierced Sam Gamgee. In the end, the shadow is only a small and passing thing. There is light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. And Keller commented on that. If the Bible is true, then the whole universe is a universe of joy and glory and life. And we are stuck in a little tiny speck of darkness. But even that darkness someday is going to be taken away. And that is what uh, defines the, uh, the explosion, the, the singularity that occurred when, you know, the cosmos is ripped in half and God comes in and destroys death and, and rises to life and then ascends and spreads that around. I mean, that's what Christians don't just believe in a little bit of miraculous stuff, like superstitious. Like we believe that the whole universe was just broken in half and split open by God. I mean, it's, it's this amazing story that we have. That this new creation has come in. And that we are new humans living in light of the new creation. So that's the first thing. Is this worship service at Troas. And Paul spent three years in Ephesus. And they held 150 worship services in those three years. Roughly. And those 150 worship services at Troas are what created the life of the church of Ephesus. I mean, this is what creates the life of Salem. Um, I know it's just like an hour and 15 minutes. And this is just a little tiny thing, but it is this thing that generates who we are as a people. I mean, the worship service is the central thing that is Salem. This is what Salem is, as we gather and this thing happens to us. And when this happens enough, it creates something. Uh, It creates this amazing community. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that when Paul is going back to Jerusalem, he stops Notice he doesn't go into Ephesus. He could have gone into Ephesus, but he doesn't do that. He, he stops a few miles outside of Ephesus, and he says, I want the elders to come, and I want to address them only, because I don't have time to go to the city. But he thought that if there's one thing he needed to do to strengthen the church of Ephesus is to call the elders. So verse 17 says he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And this is the only speech in the book of Acts where Paul is talking to Christians. So it's kind of like one of his letters. It's a speech directed to Christians. And if you notice, uh, he doesn't give them a creed. Creeds are important, but he doesn't hand them the Apostles' Creed. He doesn't hand them uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith. He doesn't give them bylaws for church. He, doesn't, he could have done that. Uh, he, he says, uh, let me tell you the story again. Let me tell you about the way that we live as people of the new creation." And uh, he says, you need to be U-shaped people. Like, you elders never need to, like, you can never let that go. Because if you let that go, it's going to be let go in the whole congregation. In verse 19, he says to the elders, and this is probably like 10 people. This is not a large group of people. 
Um, He says, I lived among you with all humility and tears and trials from house to house. That means like deeply embedded in the community of the church of Ephesus. He was not like floating a few inches off the ground, you know, just kind of sequestered in his office writing sermons. I mean, God forbid that ever happened to me. Like if that starts happening to me, you tell me because I do not want that to happen to me. Uh, This is a guy who is uh, daily admonishing Everyone with tears, verse 31. Three years I did not see stay or night. And um, I actually worked with someone one time who said, uh, my job, I don't feel comfortable sharing my life with the people because my, I work for the people. And I was like, that is, not, that is not the way that Paul conceives of ministry at all. That, uh, you, are, you cannot be aloof or distant or disconnected. Uh, it says in verse 37, they were kissing and weeping and hugging as they left. So there is this uh, emotional intelligence, uh, this relational capacity that the elders must have. And it says that Paul uh, did not like climb this pyramid of power uh, to get everybody to look up to him and serve him underneath him. But he plunged down to the bottom of the tank, the bottom dweller, and he served. Verse 24 says, I did not reckon my life to be of any value except that I served you. And that means elders give their lives away. Elders are not in it for status. We are not in it to pad our resume, although today it would probably be the opposite of that. If you put elder on your resume at a church, it would probably not help you. But uh, in the past, maybe, uh, someone would become an elder to just show that they were an influential member of a, of a city. Um, but that's not the way Paul saw it. If the elders are ever using their position for gain, it breaks trust enormously, especially with money. Um, very dangerous. That's why Paul says in verse 33, I did not covet anyone's silver or gold or apparel. And Andrew Mooney, uh, who came to a couple of, of our session meetings, uh, Andrew Mooney said, uh, y'all are more like the Fellowship of the Rings than you are the Jedi Council, which I had to think about what that meant. And maybe you don't know what that means either. But I think he meant that the Fellowship of the Rings were like these folks who were like serving one another together in it. Uh, in this battle together, uh, suffering with one another. And the Jedi Council, apparently in Star Wars, I don't know enough about it, but they seem to want power and control. And that is certainly not, that's what the wolves did. In verse 29, he says, fierce wolves will come in. And they want to destroy the culture of the youth. They, they want to destroy grace. Um, fierce wolves come in. And the problem is not out there. See, we often... Churches complain about the culture, something wrong with the culture. If we could just get our act together in the church, we don't have to worry about the culture at all. If churches in this country um, were simply based in the catastrophe of grace, uh, people would come flocking in. The problem is the church. They come from within, verse 30. And uh, it's, frankly, it's elders uh, with these big ideas about how things should be done. If somebody's clamoring to be an elder, that's always a red flag. If they really want to, to, have, an, to have influence in the church, and they, they've got these big ideas, we're going to get this done, uh, that's a bad idea. My daughter goes to a church in Greenville, North Carolina, and, uh, and that pastor was telling me there was this one elder. And uh, this guy was so self-certain. Uh, he, had, he was pushing his agenda so hard, he was so divisive, that the presbytery had to come in and remove him. Because, and I think that if there's ever a place for church discipline, it is, it is a schismatic elder more than anything. An elder that wants to divide and have their own way, that is the most dangerous person of all. And so this guy was removed. 
Uh, praise God. Um, it says in verse 30, they will distort and twist the way. And that means that the way of the cross uh, is twisted. And it becomes the way of power and the way of glory and the way of triumph. So uh, judgment and self-righteousness take over instead of uh, grace and brokenness. And um, looking good and hiding sin become the way of the elders. And, and this, this happens in churches. So the elders have to redefine spiritual maturity in the church. And it's the, the, the chief repenters is uh, the way my old mentor always described the elders. We are the chief repenters in the church. That means we repent first. We repent most. We repent best. We model repentance. Luther said that the entire life of a Christian is one of repentance from first to last. And Paul says in verse 21... Uh, that, that elders must be testaments of repenting to God and believing in Jesus. So if elders are not repenting, uh, then we are not being elders. There's a book um, called Praying Like Monks and Living Like Fools. I've not read this book. My friends texted me this quote from the book. It's great. It says, uh, we imagine spiritual maturity as the need to confess less. We imagine that spiritual maturity is the need to confess less often. But maturity is the opposite. It is an archaeological dig discovering the depths of my personal brand of fallenness. And the depths to which God's grace has penetrated to get me, to save me. That's why uh, Paul says in verse 32, the grace of God can build you up and sanctify you. The grace of God. We always think that it's going to have to be like a rigorous application of the law or willpower because grace is not enough. But Paul is saying that grace is not Christianity 101. It's 101, 201, 301, master's level, PhD. It's always grace. That is what changes people. It's grace, the grace of God. And so Paul is here weeping with these elders and he's going to Jerusalem to suffer and be arrested and he says, he says in the, the, the new humanity that God is forming is this family of grace. And verse 28, um, many of the commentaries I read said, this is the most theologically rich verse in the book of Acts. So that made me pause and really think about it. They said, this is the fullest interpretation of the death of Christ in the book of Acts. And this is what he says. <clears throat> Luke says basically that elders, in verse 28, are spirit, Holy Spirit appointed shepherds. So notice the three persons of the Trinity. The Spirit appoints the elders to be shepherds who care for the Father's church, which is really just assembly, the word in Greek, the Father's assembly, which the Father obtained with his dear one's blood. And I know some translations say with his own blood. It should be his dear ones, his only beloved. So the Spirit is uh, sending in these shepherds to care for the Father's family, which the Father obtained through the blood of his beloved son who agreed with the father to make this happen, to make this exchange happen. So to unpack that a little bit, you have the, the father, son, and Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity, the perfect family, the family of love. The, the father and the son's love for one another is so enormous that it creates the Holy Spirit. It's like a husband and wife's love that is so thick and powerful that actually another person like enters the home. That's what the Spirit is. It's the actual emanation of the love between the Father and the Son. So you have this perfect family, healthy, nurturing, playful, affectionate, the Trinity. And then you have this dumpster fire of humanity. Like all of these unwanted kids who are raised by addicts and uh, abusers. And, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're violent. They're hateful. 
Um, they're misogynistic. They're racist. They're cruel. So that's, you've got the perfect trinity, and then you have humanity. And the trinity is like, we're going to bring them in. I mean, imagine if you're going to adopt a child and you decide, I'm going, to, I'm going to pick several kids that are the very worst ones I see. Like these teenagers who are absolutely terrible, who I know will destroy my family. The father and the son say, let's bring them in. And the spirit's like, but they're going to destroy the family. And, and the, son, the father and the son say, that's, that's when they're going to realize how loved they are. That's what's going to change them. And so the spirit brings in the human race, into the family of the Trinity. And they bring in all of our hate and all of our hurt into their perfect family to the point where we end up brutalizing, you know, beating up the son, killing the son. He dies. And, um, you know, the, 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 we're ready for the punishment to come because we've killed the son. We're ready for the, the fury of the father to strike down. And yet... What the father does is he raises the son from the dead and together they pardon us and welcome us deeper into their life. And that's what creates the church. Where these people, you know, you never really know how loved you are until you're loved at your darkest moment. That's when you first realize how loved you are. And this meal right here says uh, at the very worst moment of the human race's existence is when God showed uh, who he really was. How, how well he really loved Remember, we love these rascals.